This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. Today on the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast, we are joined by Robert Cody and going to be discussing some really interesting aspects about the changing private equities market. But today on the download, U.S. futures are rising this week despite the debt ceiling worries and the hopes that the Fed will begin cutting rates this year after one and a half year of rate hikes. So this is essentially kind of, uh, you know, hopefully we'll start to uh, prop the markets into a position of trying to fight inflation towards getting the markets running in a more favorable condition. But unfortunately, with the debt ceiling issues, uh, being being tossed around right now in the House and Senate. Uh, It definitely remains to be seen what we're going to do about the spending bill, which definitely has a huge impact on our bond markets, because essentially, if that isn't agreed to, then we're not going to be paying our bonds and is kind of seen as a default on our debt. So that's definitely not a good thing. But hopefully, the calmer heads will prevail and the government will get some type of spending bill agreed to and we can hopefully avoid this relatively cataclysmic issue that we really have never seen before in the US economy. Market makers are optimistic about the CPI reports being released on May 10th in the report that the the Fed policy is going to be generally optimistic with hoping that the increasing uh, rates that have been occurring over the past year and a half will have taken effect and helped to curb the rampant inflation that we've been seeing for about the past year and a half. So that is coming out at 8.30 on May 10th. So it'll be interesting to see what has happened. And we'll definitely update you next week on the download. In international news, Egypt is facing another bond crisis as Wall Street, as the Wall Street ratings firm Moody's has issued a rare downgrade of their bond rating on Tuesday, echoing the increased bond volatility in the Middle Eastern uh, bond market and additionally in other countries as well in that area. So if you are an international bond investor, the Middle Eastern market has been a bit tenuous. And unfortunately, Egypt just having their bond rating downgraded is certainly not good news. But hopefully this can all rebound and people can find some uh, good opportunities to invest when it comes to international bonds. But again, it will kind of remain to be seen as the bond markets typically are slow to move and slow to recover. So definitely something to watch out for. But this has been the news. And this is The Download. Today on the What Is, What Is a Prospectus? A prospectus is a formal document required and filed with the Security Exchange Commission that provides details about an investment offering to the public. A prospectus is filed For offerings of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, the prospectus can help investors make more informed investment decisions because it contains a host of relevant information about the investment or security. In areas other than investing, a prospectus is a printed document that advises or describes an offering such as a school, commercial enterprise, forthcoming book, etc. All forms of a prospectus exist to attract or inform clients, members, buyers, or investors. This is a prospectus, and this has been The What Is. All right. Well, today we are pleased to welcome on Robert Cody. We're going to be talking about a lot of really interesting things with regards to 
the venture capital and the startup world about some uh, paradigm shifts on how people can look at investing in this space and what it might mean to kind of change the lens in which you look at that from the utility of what people offering uh, to how this can kind of effectuate change, not only in how you make your money, but also kind of how these things are structured and where we're going to be see the, seeing the capital and the additional development in the United States. So again, I'm really welcome, really pleased to welcome on today, Robert. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, give us a little bit of introduction about yourself, uh, how you kind of came to be in this space, a little bit about your education and professional background, and we'll kind of jump into the topic at hand. So I got involved as a lawyer early on, an IP lawyer. Uh, so I work with many young companies, uh, as well as large mature companies that had uh, fundamental or breakthrough IP, created a kind of an economic moat around their business that gave them, I'll call it the ability to dominate their markets. And so I focused on that kind of company and helping them license uh, and scale their businesses and got involved in actually investing in what I like to call IP or innovation as a kind of a principal theme, instead of just looking at a, a venture as an entity with a team trying to grow its equity value. I spent my career growing the innovation value or the IP value of the asset uh, or the asset that actually was the reason the company was successful in the first place. And I found that if you can focus in on the IP asset, is it truly different? And if it is different, you'll see that in contracts with customers that are durable, you don't have the ability to move from an equity model, which essentially is dependent on the team's ability to grow the equity of the, uh, of the company, the stock price. Uh, uh, and you can now focus on revenue sharing. You can share in the economics from helping scale the use of that IP, build out manufacturing to build more products that use that fundamental IP. And it is a much better model for young companies, uh, as well as mature companies, but mostly young companies who, as they enter the market, unlike a software company, if they're building something uh, physical, something breakthrough, uh, they typically need a lot more capital. And it can be extremely dilutive for the company, meaning they could wind up owning very, very little in the end. So I graduated from doing that for about 25 years into formally starting a, a brand around what I had been doing called IP Capital. Instead of venture capital and the venture and the team, IP Capital. Same principle, find companies that have kind of economic moats, uh, monopolies around what they do through technology uh, and invest in that, help them scale and bring the kind of capital that wouldn't uh, take away ownership of the business by shifting from an equity model to sharing in a revenues. And that's where I am today. And we can talk about where those opportunities are today versus where they were when I got started. We can certainly talk about some of the opportunities I've worked on to give people uh, some kind of background uh, uh, in it, give them a taste for it. And then that will help them appreciate kind of what I'm doing today. But that is IP capital to replace venture capital, uh, not in software, but in hardware. Companies manufacturing physical products based on breakthrough innovations. And the way I like to say it, focused on the IP, the engine in the car, not just the team driving the car. And what can we do with that engine to scale its use around the world? And that is the focus of, of what I do uh, today and what I've been doing for 25 years very successfully. Yeah, and it's, and it's been kind of interesting to see, um, you know, with regard to emerging uh, companies, let's say, you know, starting over the past, um, you know, let's just call it 30 years, starting in the early 90s to today, we've kind of seen that, you know, that cyclical effect of, you know, you have 
uh, a lot of um, hardware-based stuff or more like, um, you know, concrete, less um, less in the ether things, you know, less app-based stuff, you know, starting then. Then we have a big uh, scale up into the early aughts when you have your strictly um, intellectual property companies like your Facebooks, uh, Instagrams, YouTubes, uh, all these things that are, you know, basically kind of operating, um, you know, a, an app or some type of service that is, you know, for lack of a better term, you can't just reach out and touch. It's a lot of code, uh, if you will. And now we're kind of seeing that market get oversaturated and kind of coming into what you're talking about of having something a little bit more concrete, a manufactured good uh, in kind of that spectrum of where we can really see value produced. Now, maybe kind of let's talk about why this transition is kind of happening. What does the state of the market look like? And what are some of the things that investors should be kind of cautious of? Because, you know, everyone, you know, wants to develop some type of, again, you know, intellectual property app. You know, I've been dealing with a lot of people in the um, the machine learning and the artificial intelligence space. But, you know, these things get oversaturated and, you know, it's easy for me to just say, okay, well, there's a lot of people doing it. You should shy away from it. But what right. are some of the more kind of systemic issues with those type of startups when you're looking to come in as a VC or an angel or some type of private investor in these types of offerings? So let's kind of identify what the issues are in these markets and then kind right. of be able to contrast with the benefits of the way that you do your stuff. Yeah, so I'm going to start by drawing a distinction. Uh, so everything is IP. It's a question of what kind of IP do you invest in, right? Anybody building a company, I'll call it a new venture, uh, has some kind of IP behind what they do. Where I was drawing a distinction in my kind of my background and where I'm focused today with IP capital is really hard IP, the physical goods, manufacturing physical products based on breakthrough innovations. That tends to be People like to say atoms, meaning we're engineering something through science and engineering that is new and different that can create value. I call that hard IP, uh, just to use a buzzword, versus soft IP, which is real, really where the venture capital market is focused, the app world, the software world, the bringing companies online and digitizing them. So I call that the world of bits, right, versus the world of atoms, right? Soft IP versus hard IP, just to give the audience a uh, kind of a distinction. And that distinction will um, actually be very, very meaningful in understanding where is the industry today, venture capital in particular, why is it struggling? It's struggling because since the dot-com uh, uh, boom of the late 90s, uh, when people were going public left and right with very, very little behind these companies, around the thesis that I could digitize any business. I could take it out of its brick and mortar a base and, and put it online. And now it can reach the world, which has a tremendous amount of value, right? So focusing on software or digital and digitizing businesses uh, was a great model uh, for the past 20, 25 years. But one of the problems today is that we've ignored the hard IP as we move to the soft IP, the software. And many of these hard IP companies are struggling uh, to get capital, yet there are better opportunities in many cases than soft IP or software. And um, let me step back and talk now about why that is. Uh, why, what are the challenges with soft IP? Why would hard IP be a better place to put your money today? Soft IP or software tends to have low barriers to entry. So Warren Buffett would say you bet on a business that has an economic moat around their business. He's an IP investor at, at core, really. 
Uh, he wants to make sure the company can do something nobody else can do. That gives it staying power, right? Makes it a great investment. And so soft IP companies or software companies tend to be easy to copy, uh, easy to independently develop a solution that can do the same thing. And so the barriers to competitors entering those markets have created challenges because even the best company can be, you know, uh, run out of business to be cute about it, obfuscated, obsoleted by who comes second, third, and fourth. And by the time you're looking to uh, exit this company, take it public, sell it, all those valuations that continue to go up and up and look great for investors on that company and that company that looked like a great investment, all of a sudden you're realizing that the returns, the paper returns at every round aren't being realized in actual returns. And that's a function of the nature of what venture capital has been focusing on. The other uh, a problem is that too many VCs are in the market today chasing the same kinds of deals, software. And so you have a crowded market. And just like when you go to buy a house, if it's a hot market and there are too many buyers, what happens with the price? It gets irrationally lifted. And so we've seen that, we've read about that in the press time and time again. So today venture capital is struggling in this quote soft IP or this software focus. One, because there's too many uh, VCs chasing too few good deals, uh, uh, rising the price uh, to irrational levels that can't be realized. And the kinds of companies they're focused on soft IP or software companies tend to have low barriers to entry. So the best company can be challenged uh, along the way by many me too's. And so it's become a struggle to exit these companies. And so that's the problem venture capital uh, faces today. Too many of them chasing too few good deals and in a market that has low barriers to entry, soft IP. And we see the, the effects of that with uh, companies like Silicon Valley Bank who depend on those exits to get their balloon payments, to pay back the loans that they give to these venture-backed companies. And when they can't get the exits or they can't get the exits at the right price, the guy who suffers or the bank that suffers is the one who lent that company money along the way. And so one of the telltale signs of the problems I've outlined is the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, and I'll stop there. That's the challenge that venture capital faces today. And that's, again, why I've stepped in to take what I've learned for 25 years and really shift the mindset back, shift the industry back uh, to something that focuses on hard IP. And I built a brand around it for my own personal way in which I do business. Again, I call it IP capital. Again, I'm focused on the nature of that IP, uh, not just the team and the venture and scaling that IP. And it's a much, much better place to play. But I'll stop there and we can get into why that is in more, in more detail, why IP capital, not venture capital today, why hard IP companies Companies building physical products based on breakthrough innovations today are a better place to put your money than soft IP companies or companies making uh, digital products. Yeah, and I think uh, before we get too far into that, something like you were bringing up that I kind of find interesting is that I really would have thought it would have been the the market dilution on the side of so many startup companies looking for funding, but you're kind of also saying that the massive amount of VCs out there because we've had you know kind of a uh, a growth in how many of these firms that are out there, you know, it's not 10, 15 years ago where there's Sequoia and like, you know, 10 other ones out there that are kind of, um, you know, keeping the keys to the kingdom. So you can be a lot more selective. And I think the quality of the actual products that came out of that uh, era, you know, 
back in like, you know, 2013, 14, you know, we had some, you know, back that's when, you know, 13s when Facebook IPO, you know, you have a lot of, you know, again, that really, you know, software-based IP being coming extremely valuable. But now what you're saying is that while we're still having that same, uh, you know, relatively steady amount or maybe an increase of people coming out with these startups, we're having a much higher degree or having much higher number of VCs in the space. Now, wh what do you think is kind of the the reason for that is just more people are seeing how many, you know, how many millions of dollars can be made in this industry. So they're like, Oh, I need to start my own fund. Why would I be working for these people when I can be these people? Um, you know, what's kind of the function and effect of why that's kind of happened in your opinion? Cause that's an interesting way to look at it. I thought it would have just been like way too many of these people. And it's kind of the same amount of people looking at it, but you're saying there's more people looking at more deals, which is driving that irrational pricing up. Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna use a kind of a cute line. I, I I like to term it the gold rush. And so back in the 1800s, we had a gold rush in America, and once somebody found gold out in those rivers and streams out west, everybody headed west. So it's a herd mentality, right? Uh, whenever a good thing is happening and enough visibility is brought to it, people will pour in. It's probably the time to get out, right? Um, because it means too many people would be chasing too much. Uh, too many, uh, too many good, uh, too few good deals, and in the same way, uh, too many people were going out west looking for gold, and uh, they didn't find it because there was only so much gold to be panned, right? In those rivers and streams. So it's the same concept. I, I put it to kind of a herd mentality. It's always easier for somebody to enter a market when somebody has shown there's something there to be had, and they have more of a guarantee, uh, guaranteed path. Number one, number two, because uh, people like to live in their comfort zone, right? They like to be comfortable when they step out into something new. Two, um, software companies are much easier to scale, much easier to understand, much easier to model. Uh, if you're dealing with a hard IP company, now you're in the in the game of supply chain management of vendors to build physical equipment. Then setting up that physical equipment around the world, it's more capital intensive. It requires skills that you don't need with software companies. It actually is the skill set that venture capital built their industry on, but they've fallen from their roots and moved away from that hard IP world to the soft IP world. And with the gold rush of the dot-com boom, that I could make a lot of money by digitizing the world, digitizing businesses and developing software apps on my phones and other products, it became something where people saw easy money. So they poured in like the gold rush. And when they poured in, they also saw an opportunity they could understand. And so the skill level to grow these companies that you see in venture capital isn't high. The barriers to entry uh, of, of, of competitors in that market are also not high. Unlike in the hard IP space where manufacturing is a hard thing. A lot more capital. It's a different skill set to scale that kind of IP globally. And so uh, you basically made it easy to uh, enter the market, not only for competitors in the kinds of companies you're focused in on, but for more and more VCs to come in the game that really didn't have that hard IP, that kind of physical product, that manufacturing experience, which is really where uh, venture capital began. The computer industry, the semiconductor industry, the biotech industry, uh, you can name them, uh, planes, trains, and automobiles. Everything that built the empire, I like to call the American empire, was really 
built on uh, an industrial base. We made things, we built things, and we need to build things again. And that's where the mar markets are hot. That's where the technology is hot. That's where the trend is upward. Uh, yes, we're going to have AI to infiltrate the software world and bring some renewed vigor into that. But again, it doesn't take away the problem that the barriers are low there. The competition there's, is fierce. There are too many VCs. We need to move over where we have that kind of high barrier to entry. And we have those tailwinds. Uh, Warren Buffett calls the American tailwind of innovation one of the greatest reasons why he's been successful. I'm trying to bring the country back to the way it was built in the first place and ride those winds again and make sure those winds are strong. And to make sure those winds are strong, we need to invest in companies that have uh, hard IP. Uh, it takes years to get to market. They're durable. When they get to market in their revenues, uh, they have that economic moat. They have that monopoly power around what they do. Uh, somebody just can't walk, uh, you know, walk up and, and copy or obsolete that kind of company. That's the kind of company you want to bet on. It's like a blockbuster new drug. You just don't knock that off uh, easily, and you get many, many years of uh, protection de facto from the time frame that it takes to develop it, science and engineering based, and the capital. And when you enter the market, if the contracts are there and the customers are buying, what looked to be fundamentally different to be a breakthrough is now proven. And if you can see both, you want to uh, ride that wave. That's where you should be putting your money as an investor, hard IP not soft IP, if you really want to see outsized returns and not be victimized by what has historically been in the software world, the venture world to date, more of a lottery ticket holding equity that like lottery tickets for the most part never pays out. Sure. Now with regard to the, you know, just use your terminology, the soft IP versus hard IP, the main, um, you know, exit strategies for these things are, you know, either an acquisition or an IPO. Um, and it seems more often than not, the acquisition, you know, play is what most of the people are going for. You know, we've seen a, a kind of a stymie. We had a, we were running gangbusters on IPOs pre-COVID and, and we still, you know, have had, you know, several large ones happen since then. But, you know, for the most part, it's, you know, one of two things. And they, you know, for, for a lot of them, it's, you know, maybe be, maybe seed round to acquisition or IPO, they're looking at, you know, like a four or five year, you know, runoff of what I've kind of seen on, on my side of things. You know, they're not looking to be in that, you know, pre-phase for longer than they absolutely have to. Now, when it comes to the hard IP, um, is there really a fundamental difference? Are they still kind of looking at that same uh, trajectory of saying, hey, we either want to sell or we want to, you know, IPO? And what is the kind of difference in, you know, when people are looking at these, you know, besides just the fact that, hey, I'm investing in an app versus, hey, I'm investing in a company that makes, um, you know, let's just say a new automation machining technique or so, you know, something that again is hard IP, but right. what's kind of the, the fundamental difference in their strategy, or is it just a longer one to the same end for those types of companies? Well, I think when you invest in hard IP, you become no longer, no longer wedded to the timing of an exit. We'll talk about why that is. Uh, when you're in the soft IP realm, you become wedded to the uh, exit time frame. The nature of the way venture capital works, its model is essentially an equity model. I call it a lottery ticket. And you do depend on that acquisition, M&A uh, or sale, uh, however you, whatever you want to call it, or an IPO and going public. But you depend on that uh, and you're forced to exit, um, usually dragged along 
uh, by the venture capital firm once you've gotten to a certain value because they need to exit those opportunities uh, and realize the uh, the equity value or the equity appreciation. So when you move to hard IP, and we'll talk about why, you're no longer wedded to the timing of an exit. Uh, and there's good reasons for that. But let's uh, just stay focused on the soft IP for a moment. Most soft IP opportunities, as I mentioned earlier, aren't going public. They aren't IPOing. They're, they're acquisitions. And you're lucky if you get the acquisition, number one. And if you get it, it's very hard to get the price to match the valuations along the way. Again, because when there's lots of competition, then buyers have choice. And when they have choice, it brings the price down below what the value may have been along the way. And so we're seeing fewer exits, exits taking longer. And we're seeing those exits being more acquisition or aqua hire in many cases versus IPO. And again, it, the reason for that is low barriers to entry, best software company, soft IP company can be me too by a replacement or a copy of exactly what it does. And it's very hard to exit uh, those opportunities. Either you're obsoleted and you're run out of business, there is no exit. Or if you do have an exit, it's typically going to be an acquisition. Uh, and uh, that acquisition is not uh, good for the company. We want our companies to either continue as ongoing businesses and choose to never exit if they want, or to go public if it's in their interest uh, to go public. It makes sense. Uh, but the bottom line is we want more companies to live on. We don't want to see our young forest be gobbled up by our old growth forest because it's not healthy for a country to be concentrated in too few big companies. We're better off having a healthy, diverse base of small, medium-sized, and large companies. It keeps everybody honest. You know, when somebody has too much power, we always have seen in history, just, you know, whether it was slave labor uh, or whether it was um, uh, just taking advantage of workers. Uh, because when I hold power and you don't have choice as a worker, uh, I have control over you. And that means control over your wage. We created this, this empire, the American empire, to free the world from tyranny because too many people, too few people held all the power in the world. And when that happens, they can take advantage of people. We created unions in this country when we had the robber barons of the last century, right? Grow too powerful. So it's always, always important when you're thinking about how you grow your economy to pay attention to whether or not the big boys are buying the little boys and girls. And if too many of that, too much of that is happening, it's not good for the economy. We want a healthy, diverse base of small, medium size and large companies. That's what allows the country to grow. And more importantly, it allows our people to see increasing wages and better jobs and more, I'll call it liquidity. They have optionality versus being stuck and having to work for the man, as some people would say, for their entire life, uh, which uh, doesn't allow uh, people the freedom and the creativity and the adventure that life is uh, supposed to be. So I would say that uh, acquisitions and, egg, uh, and uh, IPOs uh, are important uh, for investors, but for the economy, we want to make sure that more of these companies actually continue on, whether going public or just never exiting, just bootstrapping their growth because they've got something of value. So hopefully that answers your question. 
Yeah, it definitely does. And I just one thing I'm kind of thinking of when you're saying that, would you say that the kind of the difference in exit strategies and I guess the additional options that are really there for the hard IP based companies is kind of based around the ability to generate positive revenues? Um, you know, it's extremely hard, you know, pre IPO for a software company or again, something that operates more in the ether to really be profitable or cash flow positive as opposed to something that has, you know, and again, I use durable good as a very broad sense in the right. sense of what right. we're talking about, but having something that is, you know, more utility that has the ability to go out and employ people in tertiary industries. If you have a manufacturing good, well, then you in turn have the ability to interface with other um, other places create those supply chains. Granted, it is harder to do that. You know, it's easy for someone with a laptop and a brain to create a great idea. Well, I should say <laughs> the ability for that to happen is more widely available for people than it is for someone to say, hey, I'd like to create, you know, a new automated tool holder for precision machining and go out there and engineer it, then have the supply chains to actually make prototypes and do this and, you know, manage these things. But it also gives you a lot more options for how you can make money, I would imagine, is kind of one thing that I think maybe you're getting at if I'm wrong, correct me. But that's kind of one of the benefits that I'm hearing from you insofar as that it gives you options to say, hey, M&As are great, um, you know, so is an IPO. But you could also build this to a point where it could be its own private thing that just runs in the medium or even large size and doesn't have that inherent need to go the M&A or IPO route to get that additional cash flow positivity right. like software companies do. And I think these soft IP companies are pretty forced to exit. Uh, they uh, Venture capital has to exit their fund uh, opportunities at some point, right? They have a 10-year fund. They're investing for the first five years. They're exiting their opportunities you know, every five to six years on average uh, from when they put money down on a company. But they, you know, at 10 years and now it's been prolonged, right? It's 12 years, 15 years, right? The fun life is prolonged because of the uh, competition that emerges becomes pretty hard to exit these companies. And we, um, we were pretty limited in uh, what investors can receive as a return because of it. Uh, companies, entrepreneurs or founders find themselves uh, being acquired and they become part of some bigger organization. It's not what they intended in the first place. It's all because the barriers are low and the ability to sustain that business long-term when it's soft IP is challenging. And your only path to at least get a mediocre exit, a decent return for the investor, hopefully, and some economics, usually very little for the founders, not the pot of gold they expected when they began the journey, too many rounds, too much capital, and then all these competitive challenges. In the end, they wind up more often than not being exited uh, through an acquisition if they can, and it's just not a happy outcome in most cases, not good for the entrepreneur, it's okay if at best for the investor and for the country, it's not the way you grow an economy. Again, you don't want all your young growth to just be acquired. And that's again, a function of focusing on soft IP companies. We really do need to shift back to hard IP because it does take you off the treadmill of invest and exit five, six years, uh, mostly acquire IPO. You can now choose as an entrepreneur because of the nature of what you have. It has high barriers to entry. It creates value not available anywhere else. And so you have a business 
that has an asset, I like to call it a hard IP asset, that um, you can scale around the world. Um, the American empire was built on that. We in innovated here in that tailwind, the American tailwind, the, the thing that rose all boats for 200 years, mostly the last 100 years, uh, is hard IP assets being scaled, planes, trains, automobiles, semiconductors, phones, mobile phones, smartphones, everything's physical. Uh, and those physical innovations uh, essentially were gobbled up by the world. We shared them with the world in, in setting up partnerships globally. So we took the engine in the car uh, in building this, this country and we essentially shared it with the world and we created value around the world. We didn't limit ourselves to this country. And so hard IP is where not only investors will find the alpha they're looking for, the better returns, the more durable and certain returns, but it's the way we'll grow our economy. It's the way we grew our economy in the first place. It's where the barriers to entry are high, where the impact is high, where the benefit to the world is high. And when all those things happen, there's lots of value for you as the innovator to share in. And instead of building a business and building one store at a time or one software at a, at a time, you can go ahead and build a business globally. Uh, and that IP asset kind of, you can think of it um, as a property. It creates value wherever it goes in the world. And your team doesn't have to be the one to unlock its potential. You can share it, license it, franchise it, enter into joint venture partnerships. And that venture that you were trying to grow, the equity value of that had a team whose time and energy is limited and skills are limited to a particular focus or industry focus now is no longer uh, limited. It can, through sharing that IP property, that asset with others around the world, it can have many more teams creating value around the world, better for investors, better for the company, leaves the company in an economic situation where it doesn't have to exit if it does not want to. It doesn't have to IPO. It does not have to be acquired. It has a, a business that, again, has an economic moat around it through technology, uh, IP, as I call it, uh, that's not available anywhere else. And the smart move is to share it. Uh, yeah. Don't hold that diamond in, the in your pocket. Don't hold things close to the vest. If you're smart about how to protect your IP, the paradox is your, your best way to protect it is to share it in a controlled way where you are protecting it, but you're protecting yourself from people obsoleting you protecting yourself from people copying you and you're extending the reach of your own personal empire as a company with something that can have an impact and you're having an impact on the world. So it helps everybody. Investing in IP is a win-win for investors, for companies and for the world, right? It can have an impact. So an interesting thing that kind of is, is being, um, you know, kind of brought up in the background of what you're saying is that the, the, the nature of the investment is inherently going to be more long-term when you go to a more kind of durable, you know, durable IP model, as opposed to something where you're basically saying, okay, I plug money into this and it's either M&A or, mm -hmm. or IPO is really how I'm getting my money back out. And for a lot of people, when they think of, you know, investing as a VC or in private equity, you know, they're kind of thinking, oh, well, you know, what I'm acquiring, this private stock, this private security, you know, it's, typically not paying, you know, it's not going to paying a dividend. It's, you know, I'm plugging it in there and its value is worth whatever it is when there's an exit. Now, 
for something to be a good investment, it has to right. pay some type of return. So if you're looking into something that's much more long-term and you're not having those liquidity triggers um, much more often, where does that revenue come in to play like this? Are these types of um, are these types of startups structuring some type of like revenue share? Is there something else where people can make money? Are they less restricted? Is there like a like a lifting of like the security restriction after a certain amount of time with something that's so much more long term? Uh, let's kind of get into how this these things actually are good investments for investors because again, you could have an investment in something that looks awesome, but if you hold it for 30 years and aren't one aren't able to sell it and two, it never pays you a dime, you know, how good of an investment was it? So maybe let's get into that because that's where I'm kind of confused on this. You know, you say, I, I, I understand the value of what you're talking about and I agree with right. that, but where does the, you know, making money for the investor come into this, uh, this view on VC? So I like the word durable. That's a really good word. Um, hard IP is durable. If you make the right bets, you pick the right companies, the, that truly have those barriers to entry, meaning competitors uh, are, are looking at five or more years of catch up in capital and development timeline. It's typically what I see uh, in uh, my experience over the years. You really want a high, hard IP asset with high barriers to entry where the assets advantage is durable. Once that advantage is durable, if the advantage creates value that's the second piece of the equation. You'll see that in customers' willingness to buy. And you'll see that in the contracts they have today as they enter markets and the pipeline they have. And more often than not, um, what's standing in the way of these companies realizing that value that they have is having enough capital support to grow. But it's a lot more capital in a software company. And the 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 ability to uh, run with this company is long-term, but you have durable revenues because the nature of the value that's created creates that durability. If you don't see a contract base, then that value, which may have been talked up on paper, is not realizable and you don't want to make the bet. So one, you only want to bet on hard IP that truly has these high barriers to entry, that's gate number one. Gate number two is you wanna make sure that that advantage creates enough value that customers are willing to buy it because it creates value they can't get anywhere else. So that's an underwriting of the contract base, both existing and the pipeline. Once you have those two quote durability factors checked off, you now have an income producing asset, like a piece of real property where you charge rents from everyone who uses the property, you can now take a share of revenues, you no longer have to sit there holding equity waiting many years. In fact, who doesn't like cash flows, right? I would all day long play a ground game where I have an asset that protects my downside, which is what's happening with hard IP, unlike soft IP. I'm actually underwriting that value on protected. If something were to go wrong, like a piece of real property. So I like to call these investments IP properties to make the analogy to a real property. And then I'm going to scale the use of the property, just like scaling, uh, you know, putting renters in a building and scaling the use of the building, the, IP, the real property and collecting a toll on revenues or a share of revenues from that use. Same thing with a hard IP asset, not only protects your downside, uh, the asset coverage it creates because of the value prop it delivers to a market, uh, but it produces revenues in a durable way. Again, high barriers and contract base. 
So you know you have durability in the value and durability against comp competition. You need those two things. You now have durable revenues as the output. And once you have that, you can move to a more certain uh, style of investing that is sharing in revenues or income producing like a real property investment. So now you have something's asset backed and income producing, and it can provide the kinds of high yields you can't get anywhere else. And why do you want to exit that company? That value uh, is still going up. You still hold an outcome, a piece of the outcome. You're not left only with an income producing property. You still hold a piece of the outcome, just like a real property investor. If the property gets sold, you'll get a piece of the outcome, but you're getting paid to wait and you're getting paid a high yield because of the nature of the business. And that's the way to invest in a hard IP company to truly take advantage of, of, of the difference between soft IP and hard IP and to get excited about the long time frames, it needs to be income producing and to feel confident about the investment, it needs to be asset back, which it is in quote, the IP capital style of doing things very much like a real property investment. And now you're no longer wedded to the timing of the exit. Yes, your, your outcome, your share of the company continues to grow in value, but you're producing a high yield along the way. And that's what we need to do. The venture capital model, a pure equity model doesn't work. It works in the soft IP realm somewhat. We've seen the failings of that in performance, lack of exit. So it's not working well. But if you take that pure equity model and you try to move it back over to hard IP, it's not gonna work. The way the model works, every round you're taking in more capital to build out manufacturing with an equity model doing evaluation and every round they're taking 20 or 30% of the company. By the time you've, you know, put all that money into scale, you've taken, you've given away 70, 80% of the company or worse, and you're left with very little in the end. So the only way to really make the shift in quote, the notion of venture capital back to hard IP is to really bet on companies that have that durability and revenue move to a revenue sharing model where you have an income producing asset backed property and you're no longer wedded to the timing of the exit. And most importantly, you as the investor have a better return and a more secure investment than you would have in soft IP. But the entrepreneur is inspired, right? He's going to own a lot more of his business than if you were a pure equity model looking to take 20 to 30% of the company and fund him every 12 months, 18 months on a new valuation. So I'll stop there and, and see if you have any questions. Yeah, sure. No, that definitely makes sense. But from the point of view of like identifying this stuff, is this more of like how you as a VC are, so I, I understand exactly where you're coming from. And I've seen this, you know, throughout a lot of different types of alternatives that I've been involved in, um, you know, whether it's for something, um, you know, like some type of, uh, you know, uh, revenue share in lieu of interest, uh, you know, on like a convertible note or just some type of, um, you know, revenue share dividend for some type of private security, um, right. which, which again, makes sense. And, you know, that's exactly what I was kind of getting asked what I thought was happening. I just wanted to hear it from you. But um, again, you know, so much of the, and I hate to use traditional because this market is, you know, when you say traditional for a market, that's really only been, you know, you know, going around for the past 30, 40 years, it was kind of odd to use that adjective. But right. um, for the standpoint, um, you know, kind of the more traditional saying, hey, straight equity, uh, new round, there's a dilution, new round, there's a dilution, X, Y, and Z, till there's an exit. Um, right. Now, from the revenue share model, is that something that when 
you're saying you as the investor should look at when looking at the more durable IP? Or is it something that's becoming more commonplace when these people have these offerings to say, hey, write it right there into the subdocs and the PPM. That's how we're going to structure this because of X, Y, and Z. Uh, explain a little bit of how people can identify this and kind of go out and find things that are structured like this. Is it something that you have to ask for? Is it something that companies are starting to offer inherently? Well, I would say I'm uh, uh, probably uh, leading the charge and moving the world to a revenue-sharing model uh, from a pure equity model and moving the, I'll call it the venture capital industry from a software I, soft IP or software focused digital project product focus to a hard IP physical product focus where you do share in revenues because the nature of that investment allows you to do it. You get that mm -hmm. durability, like you've said, durability and advantage, durability and value, and thus durability in uh, revenues. Uh, and so uh, I'm basically driving uh, the world in this direction. Uh, it's important to the growth of the American economy. It's important to the growth of the world economy. It's how we help humanity. America's whole value proposition, its whole prosperity base, it's the, the light on the world. All of that is a result of actually helping humanity through innovation and sharing it around the world. Yes, we, re we reap the benefits economically from that, but that's how we built the empire. And so I'm trying to move people back. I would say that very few are doing what I'm talking about. Uh, it has historically been the way re uh, revenue sharing that new drug developments happen. Often the developer and the brand will partner to develop a new drug. Once it enters uh, the market, they share in revenues. So historically in the pharma industry, the drug development world, uh, revenue sharing has been used, again, because of the long timeframes, uh, typically. Uh, in mining rights or oil production, they use a revenue sharing approach. Mm -hmm. In producing movies, they use a revenue sharing approach. Historically, though, a pure equity model has been kind of the uh, way that venture capital works. And today, it's no longer working. Again, we see it in the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, unable to get repaid because the exits aren't happening. And it all comes back to soft IP having low barriers to entry. Lots of competition emerges to challenge that great opportunity for an investor. And too many VCs chasing those few good deals, driving the price up to irrational levels that can't be realized in the end. All of that has disappointed investors. So I think moving from a pure equity model uh, to a revenue sharing model that still shares in the outcome, either through equity ownership or straight buyout percentage to buy out that revenue share. However you want to slice it, you get a piece of the outcome. It will be much less of the ultimate outcome that a venture capitalist would want, but you're no longer swinging for the fences and striking out in this model. You're getting a high yield along the way. You're going to be hitting a double or a triple in the at the end. Uh, no matter what happens is the way the model is set up, protect the downside, play a good ground game. Don't swing for the fences, give up on the Hail Mary passes. The nature of the investment warrants it, it's durable. Entrepreneurs can't tolerate the equity dilution of a pure equity model and um, they can't tolerate it. And customers who wanna buy can't tolerate that equity model that funds them every 12 to 18 months. Big companies don't wanna buy from a small company that doesn't have a commitment that's also long-term that can gate in capital as they need it 
It shows they're financially stable. So not only is a pure equity model that venture capital uses too dilutive for these hard IP companies, but we've got to go to revenue sharing uh, and take less of the outcome, again, in equity or a buyout percentage. But um, these companies can't grow living, I like to call it paycheck to paycheck. You get enough money to get yourself to the next round, but it's not enough of a top line to get a major company who wants your value to want to buy from you because he doesn't know that you're going to have that next round. He doesn't know you'll be around in 18 months. So moving to my model, which puts a lot more capital in, that's a longer term commitment, that shares in revenues is infinitely better. It's a strong word. I use it just to be cute, but it but it's much, much better, better than a pure equity model in those couple of ways for the companies. They're not diluted where the pot of gold goes away to incentivize their, their hard work. And uh, their chance of success is much, much better if the customer can see they're truly stable with enough of a commitment they can run for the yeah. next three to five years. Absolutely. And one thing I would think that, um, you know, just from kind of looking at the the thought of, you know, people, you know, on the, on the investors, on, on the companies that are raising the capital on this method, you know, thinking, oh, well, you know, everyone else is doing it. I should probably do it that way too. Right. Uh, what I would say to that, and again, most everyone listening here is for the, the investment side of it, but just for my own musings, I see a lot of corollaries for people that like that type of investment to the absolutely massive amount of people that are in, um, you know, the, the very cash like the people that put a lot of stock in positive cash flow investing from things like commercial real estate, industrial real estate, where you have very similar kind of functions of people investing into private equities, um, large limited partnerships, uh, commercial real estate syndications that, you know, understand and appreciate the private equity world, but are again, are asset based in this case, asset based net cap, net positive cash flow investments for that, you know, that are looking for that. So I don't think that people, if you're someone that's looking to, you know, again, raise capital, have to necessarily be afraid of this because there is, you know, just because you're losing out on maybe one investor pool doesn't mean that there is not a very robust amount of people that want to do things like this that are, you know, again, are much more conservative in the fact that they want cash flow, but their pockets are very deep. Um, you know, right. there's 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 more than one well to drink from here, which I think is um, you know something that's important for people to understand when it comes to raising capital. It's not just you know three zip codes in Northern California. You can open yourself up to a lot of different people in a lot of different places to raise this kind of capital because, especially with fluctuating markets and you know uncertainty you know, a bird in the hands worth two in the bush is kind of, uh, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of that one, but it's very true. You can get something that's, you know, paying you cash flow and still has the, you know, advantage of having that back end IPO, you know, instead of, instead of always hitting for a home run, you know, hitting those double singles are going to win you the game a lot more than if you're just trying to go Sammy Sosa and throw it over the center line. Um, every single and, 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 and I like that point. I, I'd like to say the soft IP kind of reflects uh, where society has kind of gone um, through social media and just this and Wall Street, we've gone very short term. It's uh, get rich quick. It's kind of the mantra. And social media in many ways um, is a great thing because it connects the world. So it has a noble calling and a great purpose. And it's been uh, transformative for the world. Correct. Connects the world, literally. Uh, the downside on it is, or the negative, the dark side of social media is that you create the illusion 
by putting your best foot forward, your best image of you, your best mask, creates negative energies in everyone else who feels like they're not doing so well. It creates or perpetuates this short-term mindset of what's in it for me now? How do I get rich quick uh, without having to work for it? Because everyone else seems to be on that gravy train, but me. And so that kind of shift in the way we think from long-term that built the country, I call it the immigrant mindset to short-term and get rich quick kind of thinking that's kind of penetrated our society is one of the reasons that soft IP has, you know, been popular for so long. Uh, there are great opportunities. Again, it suffers from the low barriers to entry, too much competition, too many VCs chasing too few good deals, meaning the price goes irrationally high. In the end, you can't exit them. All the things that I've talked about, people are still drawn to it because it has that get rich quick feel to it. The reality is, is that the things that aren't sexy, the things that can play a, a ground game for you, where you can carry the ball, right, across, you know, the field, you know, uh, and you're not worried about throwing a Hail Mary pass and hoping for the best, that kind of get rich quick mindset will always pay out better with very few exceptions, except for the guy who happens to hit the lottery ticket and or gal and she's or he's far and few between. So you always want to be playing a ground game and you can play that ground game in hard IP because of the durability of revenues create an income producing investment for yourself. And that's why hard IP is the place people need to look at. Unfortunately, it's not written up in the press. It's not considered sexy. It doesn't have that get rich quick to it because yes, you've got to be a long ball player as Warren Buffett would say, you've got to be thinking long-term. And if it has high barriers to entry, creates value that's not available anywhere else, the durable, you're going to have durable revenues. And now you've got an investment where you can be a patient investor and it will cash flow for years. And if in the end it's ultimately sold or goes public, you'll reap the benefit of it, but you're no longer wedded to that lottery ticket. And that will bring the public in in a big, big way to helping the country because we need to move from that short-term mindset back to a long-term mindset in the same way we need to move from soft IP and get rich quick schemes uh, or or mantra, or images, uh, or pitch to a, a long ball pitch, hard IP, high barriers to entry, durability and revenues, sharing in revenues, so I have an asset back, income producing property, just like real property, and that's what people love. They love real property investments, but again, that's a crowded market, hard to get great returns. They're durable, but over in the hard IP, you've got all the benefits of real property, but you got something better. You've got something that doesn't have competition, that can last for years and can create returns, high yield that's not available anywhere else. Uh, that's where your true alternative is. Most of the alternatives today were once alternatives, but they're not alternatives anymore. Too many people invest in them. I'm offering up uh, with what I'm talking about and what I offer as IP Capital, a true alternative with true alpha, with true durability, and it all comes down to betting on, betting on things, hard IP that isn't sexy in the media, but boy, does it play a great ground game for years.
like a piece of real property, but with better yields, better returns, and better durability because the competition's not there. Sure. Now, um, you know, we're kind of coming towards the end of the podcast, but one thing I did want to kind of cover with you that we have, and I think we've kind of, you know, really, you know, have, have given a very well-rounded look at, um, you know, the the contrasting differences between the soft and the hard um, you know, IPs with regards mm-hmm. to, okay, you know, software versus durable goods, things like that. But, you know, it's all well and good. You know, we've kind of hammered on, you know, what the right. the the companies are that are doing the more soft approach. But what industries really are there? I mean, it's easy for someone to say, okay, yeah, like, you know, how much room is there in industrial manufacturing? Um, you know, but, you know, just off the top of my head, I know com- certain Oh man, I know that there are industries such as the uh, the biomedical fields, you know, with uh, things like mm-hmm. um, you know equipment, drugs, you know, you know actual products again that aren't just software based. Uh, you know, there are some manufacturing things, but you know how, how many different new manufacturing things are out there? What are some of the kind of industries that are really seeing some, you know, that that you're focusing on or that are there to be looked at by the investor? Like, where are these kind of things more often found than not? So that's a big question. I will say that if you read um, the history books, you'll find that every generation thought that um, everything that could be invented was invented. And what new could show up in our lives. So it's very hard to see the future unless you're involved in actually creating the future in a particular industry, solving problems. We just don't have the visibility. So the answer is there are thousands of opportunities in durable goods, as you call it, or physical products based on breakthrough innovations. So uh, uh, because it's not written up in the press uh, every day, doesn't mean it's not there. It just doesn't have that get rich, quick kind of feel to it. It's not become the thing the press wants to write about, but it is where the unicorns will come from. This hard IP market, this physical side of the house where we make things, we build things again in the same way the empire was uh, created in the first place. Through deep science and engineering that changes either how we make a product, so it could be the same product, but it's made more efficiently, or changes the product altogether uh, so that it can create value in new ways. Uh, And those things exist in the thousands across the globe, those physical technologies, those physical products. And I'm going to say the biggest area there is sustainable development technologies. Another word would be green. And that breaks down into technologies that are changing how we manufacture all the products in every industry. So they're made more sustainably. So we're still making the same products, but we're making them more sustainably. And you need technology uh, across all these industries to be able to do that. What does make it more sustainable mean? It means you using fewer natural resources. That's one way. Uh, Using, uh, your waste, reusing your waste. So you create a circular or circularity in how you manufacture. And it means that I'm polluting less uh, renewable. So sustainable includes traditional efficiency using fewer natural resources, circular, I'm reusing my waste and renewable in how I consume my energy, solar energy instead of oil-based or petroleum-based energy Uh, is one way uh, to think about it. 
good examples would be companies. There are a number of companies that have uh, created coatings on buildings, whether it's a pre-made panel that becomes the facade, whether it's a transparent coating on the glass, exterior of a high rise or the window in a home. It can have these uh, either silicon grains of sand or nanocarbon grains of sand that convert the light to electricity and turn every building and every window into a solar panel, something that will transform the world to renewable energy. Uh, and that's an example of, a, of, of technology that's happening today across many, many comp companies, each one having their own way of skinning the cat, whether it's silicon-based silicon materials, uh, or whether it's carbon-based materials, it's all out there. You just don't read about it in the press very, very often. And those companies create the kinds of value propositions you can't get anywhere else. So I would say sustainable, circular, and renewable. And if it fits in one of those buckets, um, you want to be playing in that uh, because you have great tailwinds there. Why great tailwinds to carry the, the industry, those, in, those industries that are doing sustain, adopting sustainable tech, circular technologies, renewable energy technologies. Well, the public and government, the public and governments, governments through regulation, if you, you know, Google around uh, in Europe, in particular the US, uh, the public and governments are pushing big companies small companies, everybody to go green in one of those three ways, sustainable, circular, renewable. We need to protect the climate. I call it green. I'm a conservative by kind of upbringing, but I'm very, very progressive in my thinking. Uh, and green would be a no-no in my world, but green is no longer a no-no. Why? Because it's not just for the environment. Those efficiencies, and that value proposition creates higher profits, dramatically higher profits in manufacturing than exist today and higher growth. And so you always wanna be investing in a rising tide with a lot of tailwind behind it. And that tailwind is the governments and the public pushing every industry to go green. And that's why those hard IP companies, which is where much of the opportunity exists, are the ones to bet on. That's where you will find your unicorns. It will no longer be soft IP uh, companies. You will start to read more and more about these hard IP companies. And you know, when everybody knows where the great opportunities are, they're no longer great opportunities. So uh, time is now to invest in, in things like what I do, IP capital, that invest in these kinds of companies that take advantage of where the tailwind is versus soft IP where we had a tailwind, that wind has died out. Yes, it will be reinvigorated with AI, but too many VCs chasing too few good deals. The barriers to entry are low. And while it looks sexy to start and it looks good in the press and looks like a get rich quick opportunity in the end, we'll see the same kind of failings that we've seen now in software. It will continue, uh, but people will um, naturally heavily uh, play in that space because People like to play where they know and where they feel comfortable. But the real opportunity is where you hadn't thought about it. It's where not everybody is. And that's where I'm headed. That's where I focus. That's where I've been for 25 years. But now I'm trying to take the country there. Again, good for companies, good for investors. And it is good for humanity. It 
all these things have uh, a real impact in our in our world. Yeah, and that's that's a really good point. I think a good one to kind of wrap it up on is that. Uh, you know, when looking at this more hard IP approach, as you've termed it, it's not necessarily looking for something that is, hey, a product that has never been seen before. It's not, you know, a new cancer drug per se, while that's all well and good. And those people can certainly sell and, and make great money on that. It can be something as innovative and as durable as finding a new way to do something differently that, you know, has value to some type of industry, whether, like you said, like, you know, creating a a system that, you know, can reuse something that was previously just a byproduct, you know, think about, you know, when they used to just burn off natural gas from offshore drilling. And now they sell that stuff because people need it. That <clears throat> that kind of thing where you can have these ideas that are plugged into an industry that kind of yeah. change, increase efficiencies, help create additional revenue streams and still have some type of durable product. Um, I think is, again, that's not even something I was kind of thinking about and talking to you. I was just kind of that mindset, oh, create something new because that is the whole mantra behind the soft IP world is like, Hey, I have right. to create something new. You know, you can't say, Hey, uh, you know, I have another word processor. It's got a few different fonts. Like, you know, it has to be something, you know, that has not been done before inherently in that industry, as opposed to this, where it opens up, you know, you can create right. something new, but it gives you so much of a larger spectrum on how the founders and the entrepreneurs can find something that is again, valuable, that can create value for shareholders and be a solid investment. Right. And I'll, I'll give a couple of examples uh, to really crystallize that point. So again, much of the hard IP is focused on transforming how we make things that exist already, but making them more efficient, less impactful on the environment. Uh, but that efficiency is where the profitability comes from or that greater value prop, right? If more efficiency means lower cost to make, higher profits. Greater value prop to the consumer or the end purchaser means uh, I can share in that extra value and I can charge a premium for my version of the product over somebody else. I have a, a supercharged version of that product that creates more value than you can get from the next guy. So probably uh, maybe two or three examples. One would be textile waste off the factory floor that I can buy for pennies on the dollar that I can put through a manufacturing line, it's about 150 meters long, proprietary technology, proprietary recipe. It can take those cut and sew clippings when you make a garment in factories in Asia, South America, uh, to some degree in, uh, in uh, the Caribbean. Uh, and I can actually take those clippings and actually reverse spin and get back the original fiber but I can get it back, unlike recycling, that kind of mechanically chews it up and spits out kind of like, I call it junk or less than high quality fiber. So I can't remake with mechanical recycling the same garment. But imagine if I can take that waste, that cut and sew waste, turn it back into the original fiber quality, into a yarn, into a fabric, I can make the same garment again. Well. If anybody wants to Google, they will uh, go, go on Google and Google around on the initiatives that the fast fashion industry has underway to go green. H&M is going to have 30% recycled material in 100% of their garments by 2025 and 100% recycled or sustainably sourced materials in 100% of their garments by 2030. That's the goal. Now you know why there's such a tailwind to drive companies who can solve 
the problem of how do we recycle my clothing and put it back into making that same clothing again. But if I can buy that waste for pennies on the dollar as the guy who can solve that problem and sell you at the same price, that output that you were paying, you know, virgin pricing for, I've got a business that naturally is much higher profit instead of all the inputs that I would need to make a virgin sourced product. I can reuse the waste at pennies on the dollar. And now you see the magic of, of circularity in an industry. And now you know that every industry has got this circular mission. The, the clothing industry is the one that I, I picked on because you'll see a lot of that among all these big brands. That's one example. Another example would be imagine that my Coca-Cola, my Diet Coke, my Pepsi, my whatever you want to call your, your favorite drink that has carbonation in it, that carbonation is made with CO2. Imagine a company, and there are a bunch of these, that have built technologies, plants that can suck the carbon dioxide out of the air, which is good for the environment, and turn it into something that can carbonate your beverage. It's not unhealthy. It doesn't harm you. I'm cleaning the air, and I'm producing Coca-Cola, Diet Coke, Diet Pepsi, whatever your favorite drink is, and that input cost from the air is free. So I don't know if that gives you some good examples of how we're making the same things, but we're doing them more efficiently and more sustainably than we've ever done them before. And it brings the kinds of profits into manufacturing that quote product that haven't existed in decades. That's what's sexy. That's what's hot about hard IP today. And that's why the tailwinds are there. The world wants us to go green, whether we like it or not, whether we have a philosophy that favors it. And what I'm telling people now is green is the new gold. And wherever you see green, you will see higher profits. And that's where you want to put your money. That's where the asset will be to protect your investment. Where That's where the durable revenues will be because the demand is there for it. And that's where you will have an income producing property, unlike the lottery ticket in soft IP and the challenges we've talked about at length exist. You just don't want to be there. You want to play there, go play there. But I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that the hard IP is where the world is headed. That's where the tailwinds are. And again, I'll end with green is the new gold. Green is not just good for the environment. It's good for people too and good for investors. Fantastic. Well, Robert, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be with us today. I really did enjoy the conversation. It definitely uh, opened my eyes to a few things. So anytime that I can learn something in one of these or have it changed my way of thinking about something for the better, I always do appreciate it. Uh, so with that said, uh, if people want to get in touch with you or uh, work with your firm, how can they find you? Where, where are you located? So they can go to my website, which is uh, Cody, C-O-T-E, capital.com. Uh, and there they can uh, contact me, reach out. Uh, they can also email me at R-C-O-T-E, last name at CodyCapital.com. Those are the two ways. We will be putting up uh, an offering where we're going to allow accredited investors to participate with us. Uh, there'll be a couple of ways to do that. So stay tuned, uh, register on my site, and we'll let you know. We have three very sexy, uh, I like to say, opportunities, a multi-billion dollar opportunities coming online. There'll be a small slug of capital that we're going to allocate to people so they can play along. Uh, we don't really need the capital, but I believe that uh, the people should participate in bringing the change they want to see. And I think as we grow, 
uh, I'll become less and less uh, dependent on large trees for uh, these deals uh, uh, because it's not all my money uh, and more and more of the diversification you get from the people. And I think the people need to bring the change they want to see. And I'm helping them uh, get there. I hope to uh, you know do great things. Uh, I left my job as an IP lawyer to do this. And uh, I think uh, you're going to see a lot of change coming, not just in AI in the software world, but in the hard IP world. And it's going to be big, and that's where your unicorns are going to be. So stay tuned. Thank you for um, you know having me, and uh, I really did enjoy the conversation. I really like the interactive uh, you know nature of how you ask questions. So thank you for that. Fantastic. As well. well, again, I thank you very much, everyone. Please thank you. I should say thank you very much for being with us today. I really enjoyed having Robert on as a guest. Have a great day, and thanks for joining us on this edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage Podcast. Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies. Want to hear more episodes of the Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.